Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Brendan Cox, we do know each other already, and I am very touched that you've agreed to come on Therapy Works. You're a campaigner and an activist focused on counterterrorism and community cohesion. First question I ask every guest that comes on the podcast is, what is a particular challenge you have faced or are facing? First, thanks for having me. Yes, I, you have been a huge uh, help to me through the through the last few years. So I'm very glad to be talking to you again. That's a big question. You can tell I don't listen to podcasts very often on the basis that I hadn't prepared for this question. <laughs> challenge in the context of coping with grief specifically or challenge in terms of fixing my bike? I think it's the psychological challenge of your life which I'm assuming but I may be wrong is gr- is grief. Yes, I think undoubtedly since Joe died seven seven a bit years ago. Can I pause you? So for listeners who may not be so fully aware, do you, do you want to say what happened so that we have a context of what your challenge is? Joe Cox, who was a member of parliament, uh, who many of your listeners might remember, was killed about seven years ago by a far-right extremist. And my kids at the time were three and five, so relatively young. And I think, yes, to answer that first question, I think without a doubt, my biggest life challenge has been dealing with that. And I think in terms of the the specific difficulty, I think I've always been a sort of relatively optimistic person. I've always had a degree of confidence in my ability to fix things and to deal with things. And what losing Joe meant was that it was unfixable. It was uh, something that I couldn't make right. And no matter how creative or energetic or hardworking I was for the kids and for me is always something that it's too big a thing. You can't do anything about it. So that not being able to make it okay piece has been the thing that I've always struggled with, which I guess is both the sort of brutal reality of it but also understanding the limits of your agency, of your ability to respond. 
I remember it so well. I remember it before I met you, the kind of shock that she was so brutally murdered when she was doing her job and helping other people. And I think the circumstances of her death obviously increased the level of your powerlessness, but that fundamental issue of her dying, that it can't be fixed, I think is the core issue of people who are grieving. Who am I now? And I can't make this better. I can't go through it. I can't go around it. I can't fix it at all. So how do I both surrender to it and find a way of living and being a parent? Yeah. And and I think also I remember talking to you at the time about post-traumatic growth, I think it was called, and that sort of sense that for some people in the aftermath of that trauma, obviously that trauma lever entirely leaves you and the pain of it doesn't, but that there might be some areas in your life where where you grow in the aftermath of it. But I think for me, the thing that got me through certainly those early stages wasn't that really. It was an understanding that I had one task in life, which was to make sure the kids were okay or as okay as possible. I think without the kids... I would have been much more lost on one level. Practically, it would be much easier. And the pain that I've always seen through the kids makes it much more profound, hurts me much more, I think. But also it gave me such a clear sense of purpose and mission in terms of what I wanted to do and be the best possible dad and surround them with love and make sure that they have all the adventures and the joy in their life that they would have done if Joe was still here. So that was my saving grace. And actually having a focus and a clarity that your sole job was to, in some ways, allow your children to grieve the death of their mum and also have joy, fun, excitement, creativity, whilst witnessing viscerally and feeling it intensely in your body their loss. It's both a clarity, but also you're grateful for it. But it is not, often I've heard other clients say the most difficult thing of all is A, parenting alone, and B, seeing my children in pain. Yes, undoubtedly, the seeing your children in pain piece. Yes, undoubtedly, by far the hardest thing. I knew what I had to do. I had that sense of purpose and still feel it now. I don't think about the detail of it every morning, but it's definitely the thing that motivates me and makes me keep striving and wanting to be a better dad and a better dad, partly what Joe would have done and therefore how how I make up for that absence as well. So trying to change my parenting style slightly because when you've got a sort of yin and a yang, it's not that actually Joe and I were very different in our parenting styles. We were probably 90, 95% overlap, but there was a difference. And so trying to think through how do you get that other bit that Joe would have brought into their lives in terms of parenting style, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think for me, the advice that you gave me in the very early stages, in the first few days really, about plainness and what felt quite brutal at the time, but a sort of openness and honesty about what happened and those decisions that I had to take in the early stages in terms of, for example, them seeing Joe's body, those very difficult decisions in the early stages have meant that we haven't had a sort of a moment where they have 
suddenly found out something they didn't know before. The great thing about them is they're very able and very comfortable talking about Joe. We talk about Joe every day. And she's a very present part of our life as well. I could feel the pain of that shoot through me. And I remember that time and the kind of the instinct to naturally protect them against the brutality of the truth. And yet, in some ways, the brutality of the truth is one of the things that has protected them in that there hasn't been unknowns or suddenly someone has said something that they didn't know about. So they've been able to trust you and been able to ask you impossible questions. They haven't had to protect you because you've told them the truth. Yeah, we've been open with each other and I think the kids are very open with me about how they feel as well. Uh, very recently, this summer, got remarried as well. And Anna, who's my, my new wife, has been amazing at sharing in Joe and being able to have those conversations with the kids about Joe and not feeling any sort of conflict in, in any of that. So it means we're able, I hope at least the vast majority of the time, to have a very open set of conversations about how much we love and miss Joe but also how excited and how positive they are about life. I think that balance, keeping that sort of duality, the honesty about the loss, but that doesn't have to colour every, every moment has been really important to all of us. And for people listening whose children may be recently bereaved, I think this is such an important message in that you do hold both the ways that they'll feel sad and miss their mum and they'll do that. I, I imagine over the seven years they've done it differently from when they were three and five and I imagine that's come out like going to a new school or fighting with a school friend or you particularly miss your mum at a particular time but also creating and allowing joy and love and fun and that as beings we have the capacity to love many people all at the same time that they can love their mum and they can love Anna. And I think some of the biggest complex relationships I've seen is when a stepmother comes in after a parent's died and has somehow there's this competition that gets set up. So rather than being open and that we can in some ways have a blended family, even though Joe has died, and maybe that's the wrong term to use, but including her, I've seen many times when the surviving parent has put the photographs away, hidden the clothes in a box, taken everything out, and the mother or father is never mentioned again. Again, when Joe died in those early stages, I spoke to you a lot about it. I also connected with lots of people that had been through not the same thing as obviously that happened to Joe, mercifully, that's very rare, but who had lost, either had lost their spouse when they had kids or had lost their mum when they were little. And that sort of picking up on all of the themes that you talked about a lot at those early stages about the sort of that honesty and not keeping things back from them, not not giving them false hope in terms of um, describing her as asleep, all those basic things. But then also just the sort of the enabling them to have joy and then to keep Joe a sort of ongoing conversation so that there isn't a sort of awkwardness in talking about it. And as you say, then it comes out in different ways, grief, and sometimes it's profound grief, and sometimes it's the kids who are upset about something else, but it comes out because it's the easiest big emotion to connect 
to and to explain why you're feeling like you are. So sometimes it's hard to get the parameters of that. I now spend a lot of time talking and offering to talk to friends or friends of friends or friends of friends who are losing somebody or have lost somebody and has got young kids and just those sort of basic things about, yes, that's, what did you, how do you talk about it? Are you jumping in and out of puddles? Yeah, exactly. That idea and the honesty with it and then the presenceness and, and not keeping it away and hiding it from them. That for us, and it might partly be because of the age of the kids as well. I do think that's a big thing in terms of how different kids process things. But for us, that's made a huge difference. I can see that they gave you a purpose and a kind of vision of what your role was. But what supported you? What enabled you to have the psychological capacity to let them be sad, jump in the puddle and be sad or be impossible <laughs> and also have joy and, and create the joy that you could take them on treks in the woods or all the, thing, the things that you do? Yeah, I think part of that was just the way that Joe and I had always lived. We always had this sort of family ethos about sucking the marrow out of life and lighting a candle at both ends and throwing ourselves into adventures. And so I didn't want that to change. I love that, by the way. Can I just say that is such an amazing image. It's like I really want to kind of suck everything and celebrate it at each end with a, with a candle. I think that's such a wonderful kind of image to aim for. There's no way that it's possible to do it every day, but that is a wonderful place to aim. Yeah, no, it's very hard with a hangover to do that. But the rest of the time, <laughs> we, try, we try our best. And we always had that. When we first had kids, we talked about our parenting principles. So it's partly about keeping it going because of that. It's partly about who we were. We're then incredibly lucky to have one really good advice from you and, and others on how to cope in those, in those early stages. We also had really close family who guided us and supported us through it. And then this community, we live in this weird sort of cooperative community amongst a bunch of other people that live on boats. And it's just an incredibly close community. And that community bit of it, whereby the kids know everybody that lives on the other boats and they spend a lot of time with all the other kids on the boats, that closeness. And I do think, again, this came from talking to people who had lost loved ones, trying to keep everything else as stable, given that sort of the big thing that losing their mum was such a sort of transition, trying to keep everything else as the same before. So rather than moving somewhere else, staying in their community rather than changing the way that we live, maintaining that. I think that maintenance gave them the security, which otherwise with such a big part of their life suddenly changed, they might have struggled to struggle to find. And the thing that I completely agree with, like finding familiar bedrock of safety through going to school to the same place. And I do think your community, and I want to talk to you more about what you've done in other parts of your kind of work life about community but safety is really built through community isn't it that sense of belonging that I can go three boats down if dad has forgotten to get milk I can go and get milk if I'm fed up with dad because he's just really annoying me I can go to somebody else and they can give me a hug that sense of it's not just us in a tiny island, but I have a village and you have your boat village. I know that's a cliched term, but actually it's a very real, visceral, feels to me like it builds roots of stability 
you know, if you think of them as little oak trees, they had very good soil when they were born in the first few years of their life. And then they got this terrible thing that scattered their roots. But actually, then you did so much that enabled them to grow through what had happened and grow despite what had happened. And also, yes, just that I remembered Joe and I when we were and we just had Coolin, our, our oldest. We read a set of books, a set of, a set of books, it might be one book, I can't remember now, about sort of child psychology. Uh, and I remember reading about how kids in unfamiliar areas, even, even when they go out onto a street, the sort of cortisol levels spike when they don't know people. And so if you're constantly going out into an environment just on the street even, where you don't know the people that you're bumping into, you're more on edge, you're more stressed, and every time the kids come out of the boat here, they bump into somebody. Sometimes it might be someone they just had a fight with. It was annoying. But that sort of sense of safety <laughs> yeah. and connection, I think, is absolutely key to, the, to, to how well they have dealt with it. And I do think, you know, it's something that in our society as a whole, we underprice at the moment. We think a lot about ourselves as individuals, sometimes about ourselves as family, but we don't, I think, pay enough seriousness to the impact that living in connected communities can have both on the collective good, but crucially on your own sense of belonging and contentedness. Do you want to say more about that through the work of the More in Common Foundation, the Joe Cox Foundation? I know you're not directly involved as you were, your great get-togethers. Do you want to put your other hat on in a way, which is your professional view, which is also your most personal view about we have more in common than is different and what that means to you? Because I think everyone listening would find that very inspiring, really. I, I think this is something that I'd thought about a lot before Joe died. So Joe and I used to work together. That's how we met. We both worked at Oxfam, working on conflicts around the world. So we'd work in Congo or Uganda or Israel, Palestine or wherever. That is interesting that you met in such conflicted areas and found love. I guess that would have turned up the volume of what you felt with each other because the outside world was so dangerous. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it was that sort of shared sense of purpose and shared sense of mission and the sort of sense that belief in your own agency, that you can be part of achieving something, you have a role to play in the world. So back in sort of 2014, 15, both Joe and I started to worry much more about where the UK was, rise of extremism, rising hate crime. So sometimes you, you spend a lot of your time sort of thinking about what the immediate crises are, whether that is poverty or whether that is crime or whether that is loneliness or mental health or um, self-harm or wh whatever it is. And what Joe and I talked a lot about at the time and that then led into the creation of More in Common, the Joe Cox Foundation, the Together Coalition, which is the thing that I lead now, was very much a, a sense that there was a deeper underlying problem which was having impact on all of those things that was helping to drive the sense that we lived in unsafe neighbourhoods, that was helping to drive people's anxiety and depression, that was helping to drive the lack of social connectedness that we felt. And that was this deep crisis in community, the sense that we don't know each other as well as we used to, that when we do go out the door, we're less likely to know the names of our neighbours, our kids are less likely to play out on the street with other kids. And that has a real impact, as I was talking about, on our identity, on our health, you know, all the sort of stats around being lonely is a health equivalent of smoking 20 cigarettes a day, your mental health, obviously, but also the health of society. If you don't have that sense of connection, 
it's very hard to rebuild. It's very hard to get people to engage in social solidarity, to pay their taxes in the same way, to vote in elections in the same way. So uh, the work that I do now is about trying to go back a bit into that very basic. It often sounds, I think, soft and a little bit fluffy, but actually that connectedness is so much the root of all of the foundations of the things that we go on to do. If those roots aren't solid, it creates all kinds of problems for society, which I think we're grappling with now. I mean, I completely and totally agree with you. And, you know, I'm so supportive of the incredible work that you do. And what I understand psychologically, of course, is that from our evolutionary biology, when we are in a state of threat, which we would be if we've lived alone or if we don't know our neighbours, when we walk down the street, we see people as different rather than as being fellow humans that I can ask for something or smile at, our autonomic nervous system goes into fight or flight. And then, of course, when you're in that that activated place, you don't have the capacity to think. Your hippocampus goes offline. Everything goes offline except for what you will hit out at or run away from, or you go down to dorsal where you froze, where you're completely frozen. And both of those states completely disconnect you and also disconnect from your empathy and your wisdom and your history. You only see the cue of threat and danger. And so that is the like the CCTV in your camera that is telling you to hit somebody or fly from somebody or, or be rude to somebody or blame them. So as you were saying, it seems such a basic piece of understanding and knowledge that somehow has been exiled. And so it isn't part of our understanding of why we're in such a a place of extreme views and awful conflict. Yeah. And as you say, I think it's, it covers the whole sort of gamut. So the, the part of the reason, obviously, I started focusing on this is because at the most extreme end, it makes people more likely to join the kinds of gangs or terrorist networks that drive extremism because people are desperate for that sense of belonging and they don't have it satisfied through normal mechanisms. Total other end of the spectrum and the much wider sort of funnel for lots of people, it just makes them feel like a bit of a stranger where they live, like they don't have the friendships and the depth of the friendships that they'd like to have, that they don't have people that they can rely on in an emergency or in a crisis. So I think there's, the scale of the effects is so huge. And what tends to happen, I guess maybe because of the, the scale of the challenge behind it, is that we'll focus on the more sort of proximate issues. So we'll focus on the fact, you know, about obesity, for example, or around depression or anxiety, and we'll, we might create tablets for it. But it's this much deeper thing that we have to take seriously. Otherwise, I was just hearing yesterday, actually, they're now trialing some tablets in the US for to deal with loneliness. Oh, my God. There is a cure to loneliness, and it's not tablets. It's and people. Exactly. It's not to suggest this is easy, because we so many people live incredibly stressed lives, particularly at the moment, people often don't have the time or the energy to go out and join the things that might make them connected. They often work in environments where they're disconnected from other people. Lots of the sort of social infrastructure from the local pub to the local shop has broken down. So it's harder to do. But that's why I think what we need is both the sort of 
personal recommitment to in the same way that we might go to the gym or we might do some exercise to look after our physical health we start thinking about actually what does our connectedness health look like what does our community health look like and then we need the same from politics politics has to take this seriously as well because you can't deal this just from a top-down level but equally neither can you just expect people to solve all these issues when the infrastructure and the support isn't there for them either. I like the idea of checking in with yourself on your connectedness health. Do I feel lonely? Do I, out of 10, do I feel 10 lonely or do I feel actually close to people? So it's one. And if I do feel lonely, what can I actively do to shift that number down? So in the work that you're doing now, can you tell me what you're encouraging or what your big drives are? So, yeah, so there's lots of different things. And we are trying to work both at political level in terms of trying to change policy to make it easier for people. Things like, for example, that everybody should have some communal space within a 15 minute walk of their house so that you can actually hang out with each other. Those kinds of sort of basic policies that you can start to shift. But then at a sort of more practical level, the thing that we do at the Together Coalition and the Together Coalition is made up of everybody from the NHS to the scouts to the guides to most of the major faith groups it's chaired by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but brings together people of all backgrounds and none. What we try to do is to create national moments where that give us the excuse to connect. One of the insights that drives me always is that I think there is something deeply British about wanting to connect with your neighbours and do something with them, but also needing an excuse to do so. That this is sort of the slight sort of British awkwardness to going out and making the first move. So what we try to do is to create moments and those opportunities. One of the things I've just been working on that we worked with the King and the Queen on, was something called the Big Help Out around the coronation, which was a national day of volunteering. Oh, yeah. And of course, that day was about recruiting volunteers. But the thing that drove me and the people that, that helped run that was one, volunteering and doing something together, particularly where it's got a clear purpose, is one of the best ways of feeling more connected and more bonded to other people in your area. And secondly, it is those voluntary sector organisations who often provide the infrastructure for wider social connections. So it is the scout leaders who bring together their local community, it is the Royal Voluntary Service volunteer who might put together a coffee morning and bring people together. So those kind of things, those ideas, and there's, there's several others that we're working on, what they do is they just create an opportunity connect. Now, that's not enough because we know that in order for people to feel like they belong and to form those connections, it needs to be ongoing. It can't just be one off, but it's the starting point. It's the opening of a conversation. And actually, the thing that is also true is that the research shows that being altruistic, whatever it is, volunteering, helping your neighbour, dropping in is actually good for your health. So it's not only help, helping other people is good for, for us. So there's the buy one, get one free part of it. I guess what I understand from hearing you and knowing you is you had these foundational beliefs of wanting to make the world a better place and that getting to the source of it was through community and connection and getting people on side to help each other out. And then Joe's death, and then other kind of crises followed that must have been very disturbing and very distressing. And yet somehow you have 
remained optimistic and keeping going. For other people listening who are thinking, God, I'm not sure I could have done that or survived that. Do you know what the source of your own capacity is? I think there's times where I slightly worry that it might be displacement (laughs) in that I'm very sort of hyperactive in the way that I work and indeed the way that I live, as we talked about, trying to squeeze in so much into our lives and trying to do so much. And I, so I have to have worried about that a bit, but then I sort of realized I was like that before and Joe was like that too. <laughs> so it's probably a sort of pre-existing condition rather than something that is new. I think the moment that I had when I was probably 17, 18, and I was looking after kids in Bosnia who had lost their parents, it was the sort of first thing that I did. And it was during just the end of the conflict there. And it was kids who had, from Srebrenica, the, the awful genocide there, And I remember in that moment, the sort of sense of two things. One of, I felt amazing that I was able to do something and contribute in a way that, and it was very small. This was like, I was playing with kids, playing Frisbee with them most of the time. Mm. It wasn't a great intervention, but that sense of positivity. But then secondly, also agency that through very small acts, and I kept in touch with these kids and I keep still keep in touch with many of them. They're not kids anymore, that you can affect things with quite small actions and you can affect bigger things with bigger actions and that sort of sense of agency I think I've always felt since that period in my life when I was out in Bosnia and Croatia and I still feel that now and I get not only do I think it's a good and a nice thing to do but I get huge amounts of personal satisfaction from trying to contribute. Yeah I really get that so if people are listening and they wanted a kind of insight into themselves of what would help them? How would you translate that for them? I think purpose that's bigger than yourself, I think, is transformative because it takes you out of yourself. And while you don't do it in order to be good for yourself, it is, I think, for me, certainly the thing that's been best. You know, I've had that in two bits of my life. One, that really clear mission after Joe was killed to look after the kids and make sure their lives were as full as love as possible. But then also at a bigger sort of more professional level and a societal level, the the campaigns that I work on to try to find purpose and reason there as well. So I'm very lucky and very privileged to be able to do that and to work on something that I absolutely love. But I think in big and small ways, and millions and millions of people do this across the country, finding a purpose that is outside just your own sort of day-to-day life and self-advancement, I think is the thing that gives you the meaning, the satisfaction, but also crucially, the connectedness with others that we all need to thrive and to do well. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a really virtuous circle in the sense that we are wired to be social beings and connect. And I think we are wired to help others because that is how we survive from our evolutionary beginnings. It took me ages to realise that <laughs> that being part of the NHS for such a long time, where I was really paid very badly, I had the worst possible room, but it was that I had my NHS lanyard and that NHS lanyard around my neck <laughs> that gave me 10% off at Costa, which also gave me quite a lot of pride and satisfaction, was, you know, that it beat doors open quite apart from the work that I did, 
it was this sense that I was part of something that was bigger than me. And that enabled me to withstand my own sense of inadequacy and my own sense of failures and my own sense of I'm not enough because I was part of something that was overall better than me and bigger than me. And so it was, I know that isn't exactly what you were saying, (laughs) but it's a version of it. Yeah, and and I, I think for so many people feel this in different ways, but it's also why there's amazing, I think it was Durkheim that first noticed it, that in conflict, in wars, our mental health tends to improve. Our anxiety tends yeah. to reduce, our depression reduces, suicide rates reduce. And this has now been proved time and time again. After 9-11, the homicide rate dropped by, I think, 40% for the next six months in New York. The suicide rate dropped by, I think, 20%. can't remember the exact stats now. Mm. But what that was, and it was also true in the aftermath of natural disasters, and what that is about isn't that those situations aren't stressful and depressing and awful, it's that they give you that shared sense of commonality and togetherness, which is more central. Like humans can get through and endure incredible things if they feel connected and if they feel it in it together, to coin a phrase. And the problem is so often now that we don't feel that togetherness. And obviously, we shouldn't have to wait for wars. We shouldn't have to wait for natural disasters. And that's why those those sort of simple things of it's not simple, but working in the NHS and feeling that common purpose, volunteering in a local park, running a scout troop, whatever it is, those things that give you that common purpose. Just visiting your neighbour regularly. Totally. They're 100% better for you than going to the gym once a week or reducing the number of donuts you eat. And the, the stats on that, the fact that we spend so much time and money on the next round of drugs or the next clinical intervention when the social prescribing of people getting out and connecting with others and doing things with each other would save the NHS billions of pounds of years and save so much heartache and so much agony from people who are disconnected. So the idea of social prescribing is that when a patient walks through the door of a GP practice, rather than prescribing medication, antidepressants, that they would spend a little bit more than seven minutes. And that's why it's not being used is because it takes a bit of time. It takes probably 15 or 20 minutes is to ask the patient more about their lifestyle. What's going on? Who's in their life? What do they enjoy doing? What do they like? And then through that suggest that they join the gardening club or the choir up the road, or a painting class, or to go and work with disaffected teenagers, so that people are given a prescription, and that each GP surgery has this huge list. You know, we have so many of these organisations, it's not like they're lacking, but they would offer the connection. And, And in Froome, where I live in Somerset, they reduced A&E emergencies by 25% by having this network of Mendip connections. It was called, I think it was called Mendip Connections. I'll put the link on it in the show notes. The how powerful it is and how cost effective it is. It doesn't just cost less money, it saves money. Both the health and mental health. Often we think about it just through the frame of mental health, but it's also our health implications in the same way that you were saying earlier when you're constantly switched on in your sort of flight or flight mode, the hormones that your body is giving off, the inflammation 
of your system has chronic health effects if you're experiencing that loneliness, that social anxiety, that social disconnection on an ongoing basis. When they've done these studies, they found that much better advice than reducing the amount of alcohol or much better advice than reducing the number of pork pies you eat tends to be making you and improving your social connections if you're somebody that's that's disconnected. Yet, because it feels uh, less medical in some ways, and because our, our, I think our society hasn't quite got back to grips with the, the critical importance of this, it means I think we are, and also to your point, because it takes a bit longer to do and to do properly, it means sometimes we reach for the the easy solutions rather than the ones that will make the biggest difference, which are actually much easier, but perhaps less immediately satisfying than walking out with a prescription for pills. And that's the mindset that I think we need to be part of changing. So, Brendan, thank you so much. I think the message that you're giving that is both most intensely personal, but also political and also transferable, is that how we survive loss is through the love of others and through connection to others. It's love that enables us to survive and we have to create and find and politically it needs to be top down as well as individual. The environment needs to change that creates portals for us to be able to do that more easily. I think that's exactly right. And I don't ever, I'm very careful not to tell people that the way that I've coped with my grief is the way that they should because we all cope and respond and react in different ways but certainly for me that the mission both around the kids and then around rebuilding that sense of community because it's the thing that transformed my life in the aftermath of Joe's death so much and that I relied on so heavily that's definitely been the thing that has been transformative to me. I think the only other thing I'd say is that for, for those of your listeners who are going through this now and, it, and for whom it is overwhelming and overbearing, and for those of us who have been through it, just that sense that to take each, you know, it's a cliche, but to take each day as it comes, to find those small moments of joy, not to reject those because you feel in some ways that they're inappropriate given what's happened, to try and hang on to those moments of connection and not to disconnect yourself from your friends and family, but to try and drive the, in the moments in the aftermath of those awful moments, the openness and the open conversations that you can have with your friends and family are so much deeper and using those as moments to connect more deeply because you'll need those relationships for the long term. That's the only, that's the only advice I'd give. That's a wonderful piece of advice and a wonderful way to end. Thank you, Brendan Cox, so very much. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I loved his thoughts on community and the power of community. And I think it's something that people don't really think about that much. I moved house quite recently. And within the first few days of living there, like four of my neighbours had sort of dropped off little notes and sort of said hi and like just been incredibly welcoming and, and friendly. And I don't think I've ever had that before where I've lived. And it made me think about, I feel so happy that I'm 
making roots here. And it also reminded me of um, COVID. (laughs) And so during COVID, you know, everyone has their own COVID story. But I was in Brooklyn with my husband and my sort of three-month-old baby. But I was incredibly lucky because my best friend lived in the apartment opposite us and she was just on her own. And so she sort of joined our bubble. Just having one extra solid person, a bit like what he was talking about, sort of, you know, the quality of the relationship as well as the sort of quantity made such a colossal difference. Like I honestly think just having one other person kind of transformed the experience. And I think the power of community could be enormous. Absolutely. And when he talked about how, you know, that about cortisol rising when children walk out their front door and they don't know people in their situation of strangers, it really made me sort of visualize almost community as like the size of your safety zone. You know, when you when your safety nice. zone is just your house, then, you know, that's the safety zone. That's cool. Or not even your house sometimes. Well, for some people, not even their house. <laughs> um, but in terms of community, if, if you actually know people around you, then that safety zone, not just for the children, but also for the parents, right? When you know they can go out the door and other people are going to keep an eye on them in this situation or that situation. And it reminded me, you, mum, you mentioned in the conversation, the Compassion Project in Froome and how they set up. I couldn't, it's Julian Abel. I couldn't remember his name. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah. They, they've written a book called The Compassion Project. It's really, really fascinating read. But in it, I remember reading so clearly because it stuck with me that the biggest predictor of longevity is social connectedness. It's more than what you eat, how you exercise, whether you smoke. And it just doubles down on that thing that I get, we are getting better at, but still so far away from is understanding health as both physical and mental as one. Interlocked, yeah. That, that reduction in A&E is just such a concrete example of that. So I see quite a lot of teens or have seen quite a lot of teens or various people who are either on the spectrum or extremely socially anxious and they really struggle with people. <laughs> like it's very yeah. frightening, it's hard, it's not particularly appealing, um, but often they have online community. And I was wondering what you thought about the value of an online community versus a in-person community. I sort of think probably as therapists, you sort of tend to think, well, like in real life must be better somehow. And yet I'm, I think there's probably more nuance than that, really. That makes sense to me. I, my first thought is it is it about what kind of connection uh, allows you to regulate best? You know, for some people that might be for some people that's animals, right? And it or it's the natural world. A sense, you know, I don't think this sense of connectedness and community needs to only be a face to face with fellow human beings. I recently met with Marcel Farrell, who wrote about gardening and that creating an experience of belonging. Her book Uprooted, and I think anything that gives you that sense of I belong and I'm connected and there's a sense of safety in home. But that, I guess, as you're pointing out, and that can take many different forms, can't it? Not only do I know my postman and my neighbour. Yes, I think that's right. But I also think there's something about gardening, animals, you know, it's got a sort of wholesome feel to it. Mm. But I think for parents who have a teen who is not going out, not seeing people, spending the whole time just on their phone, only connecting people online... Mm. Parents feel very concerned about that. And I think it's very hard to know 
what is healthier and what is riskier? Like, is it, mm. should you sort of push people to try and make sort of in real life relationships and spend less time on the screen? Which I think is slightly different if you're sort of making connections with the natural world. I think that people feel more comfortable with that as a way of regulating than sort of only having an online community. I think that's true. I mean, I would imagine, like with all things, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, it's like it's not banning online screens and that it's not saying that you must or mustn't do this, but it's allowing that you have embodied physiological relationships as we co-regulate, I think, more in person physiologically and it's easier, we kind of wired to do that more than we do online. But I can see if you have a barrier to, or if it's difficult for you to connect with people, it would release a barrier so you can feel safer. But I would imagine it's just like you have a bit of it and not all of it. What do you say to parents, Em? What do you, what's your guidance that you offer in that situation? I mean, I think often a lot of my advice, it's, it's about your balancing risk really yeah just sort of not going into extremes like you don't want to ban screens entirely if your child is really getting a lot of their own sense of self identity I think often you know for example if you're on the autism spectrum and you have a very niche specific interest the way that you feel connected is often by finding people with the same interests as you that's the way that you feel connected that you feel like you have community and say for example your interest is space and there's not very many other 14-year-olds that are really, really into space in your local area, then I can understand and it makes sense to me that you want to find people that you can connect to because I think there's a myth that people on the spectrum don't have the same drive for connectedness. And it's just, That's it's, it's not true. It, 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 there's a truth to that that often... They struggle socially, but that doesn't mean that they're not seeking the same connectedness, That like friendships, relationships, all of those things. The drive for that is still there. It's just comes out in a different kind of way. And so I think I recommend finding other people with the same interests, however that is done, whether that's online or in person. And then, like mum said, just sort of also trying to balance it. So you know, if other people actually are creating a lot of stress, are there other things that you can do that don't involve screens that you that, that your child might be open to? Mm. It also made me think about loneliness in older people. I think you have sort of populations that are particularly struggle with loneliness. And I remember going for a talk actually with our rabbi, Julia Neuberger. She's talking about the elderly and how we're so obsessed with fixing their medical concerns, their pain, their physical pain. But actually, if you talk and listen to anybody in older age, the thing they're primarily concerned about is loneliness. And I think sometimes it can feel easier to fix the, the knee 
or the infection or give a pill, you know, as Brendan was talking about, than it is to generate social community in a way that, that Froome did by, by setting up a whole network. By the way, weren't you shocked by that idea of a pill being developed for loneliness? It's like, what? <laughs> that was scary. Yes, I mean, that is crazy. But I, I also do think that, like, there is a place for medication. I'm not anti-medication. No, but I, I think that social prescribing is fantastic and should be much more widely available. And I can also imagine myself going to the doctor feeling incredibly depressed, like I can't do anything, I can't move. And if someone sort of suggested gardening, I can imagine in that moment feeling like, hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure you've heard me. Yes, but that is also part of our culture, isn't it? The fact that people come to therapists and GPs and, and want a pill is because we've been told that somehow that that is more effective than it in fact actually statistically mm -hmm. is. Um, so, of course, we want a pill because it, it makes us feel like that's going to help more than doing gardening or it feels very laborious to when I'm depressed and I can't leave my bed. Like, how does, I'm not saying that's easy, but I think that's part of the culture that we overinvest in the power of something that actually has less power than we think. Right. So it's about sort of shifting the whole mindset around mental health our collective sort of cultural understanding isn't oh it? and also ideally a gp that has the time to have their conversation doesn't it to be like this is the pros these are the cons and that whole thing of preventative medicine if the gp gives them the time that will mean the person won't be coming back regularly you know every few weeks because the pill they gave them didn't work but it's I, I think we do need to shift our whole understanding there's a lovely charity called the cares family where young people and old people meet. And I think there's that something lovely about how two different generations, a sort of a grandparent generation with the young generation, can really learn so much from each other. That is better than a pill. Just to be clear, none of us GP bashing is it's it's no, about no. the system. It's you know, GPs do not have been given the time or the space or the capacity often to do these things. Um it's the sort of where we are in time, isn't it? And obviously, Ferendon community was a huge part of what he was talking about, but also this primary challenge of his wife's death and how to support his children and community was a very big part of that. And what it really made me think was, you know, what children really need when something very traumatic happens and how much he was able to give that to them. And that is just connected to community which is this kind of sense of safety that this very very frightening thing happened but the people around you are able to keep you safe and I think that foundation of safety through your primary caregiver is what children need most of all when they've experienced something incredibly traumatic and part of that safety was the truth Mm -hmm. That he didn't hide from them the truth. So he didn't. They, the children didn't hear from a school friend or from somewhere outside things that they didn't know. Yes, and I think that is so difficult. <laughs> the truth is sometimes so difficult, and I think so often we want to protect our children from the truth. You know, I've definitely had conversations with parents where they've really felt like they just couldn't tell their children the whole truth yet, and. I think when that happens, when you feel like, I know I want my children to know the truth, but right now, for whatever reason, there's all sorts of reasons, I can't tell it to them. And this can be for all sorts of things, divorce. You know, I think often in divorce, you're trying to find a 
version of joint truth with you and your partner, I think what you need is a version of the truth. So it might not be the whole truth, but you're also not lying. And then when you feel ready, when you're kind of in a place where you feel able to support them with the whole truth, to tell them the whole truth. That sounds like wise words to me. (laughs) I think actually because connectedness is such a powerful way of being able to bear pain, often after grief, it's not actually the first few weeks or even the first month that is the hardest time, even though it's the most raw. Because often at that time, there are a lot of people around, a lot of hands on deck. The funeral is very, um, hopefully, quite a helpful sort of processing experience. Actually, the hardest time can be two, three, six months down the line when everyone starts to disappear and go back to their lives and you're still very much in the thick of your grief. And it sounds like that hasn't been true so much for Brendan, but I think often people can be surprised by why they feel like they're getting worse when they would have thought the worst moment was directly after the experience. And I think a lot of that is to do with just how well we're being held uh, while in pain. Uh, If you are someone who is supporting someone in grief, I think it's really worth remembering, actually, if you can stay the course, if you can keep showing up when other people start to fall away, that can be a really important role in someone's life. I think that's huge. Thank you both. And thank you so much to Brendan for being so open and for being who he is and how he's managed so much difficulty and and giving us insight to that. Thank you all for listening. Do share this episode with someone if you think it will help them do rate subscribe and review because it helps people find us until next week bye let me tell you about a podcast i love and honestly i wish i'd been around when my children were younger The Mother Kind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr Julie Smith, and me to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast, just search Mother Kind.